Art of the Cut is brought to you by Evercast. Evercast is the first real-time collaboration platform built for creatives by creatives with video conferencing and HD live streaming in one web-based platform. Stay tuned for a special offer later in the show. Art of the Cut is also brought to you by Frame.io, a leading collaboration platform for filmmakers. Hello and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hallfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in film and TV. Today we're talking with Yorgos Lampernos. Yorgos is an editor of Greek origin living and working in Paris. Yorgos edited the Oscar Best Picture nominee, The Father, and was himself nominated for Best Editing for the film. He has already won the British Independent Film Award for Best Editing for The Father. In his 14 years in the editor's chair, he's won several French Caesar and Greek Iris Awards for Best Editing. Those are those countries' Academy Awards. And he has cut an Oscar-nominated short as well. I reached him for this interview at his home in Paris the day after the Oscar nominations were announced. Thank you so much. Wow, what a thrill. Congratulations, <laughs> yeah. an Oscar nomination. Yeah, 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 it's surreal, but it will sink in with time. And I'm really happy for the film. I'm really happy for Florian and obviously everyone involved. I'm extremely happy for Sir Anthony Hopkins to be nominated. Extremely happy for Olivia Colman, who is an actress that really blew my mind during the editing process. And I'm really proud of being a part of the film. So it was a good day. <laughs> <laughs> that is great. I'm so happy for you. Hey, let's talk a little bit about the movie. It's based, for those who don't know it, on a play, correct? Correct. Florian Zeller's play, which is actually a trilogy. It's the father, the son, and the mother. And so he wanted to, for his first feature film, to have an adaptation of his play, The Father. And it's a play that has been traveled a lot around the world. Obviously, it was quite a good base to adapt and, and to have a go at it. And also, I don't know if many people know this, but it is a play that has been already adapted in cinema in France. In a TV show, uh, right? Or a TV series? No, it was a movie. A movie, okay. But with a completely different take on the story. Completely different take. Had you seen the play before you cut the movie? No. I wasn't very familiar with Florian's work before cutting the movie because I'm not much of a theater person, unfortunately, because to me, theater is too direct. I prefer having the buffer of the screen. <laughs> I've seen a couple of magnificent plays, and when theater is in a high level, obviously the experience is incredible, but I'm much more a cinema <laughs> kind of guy. And after we decided to work together. I didn't want to have anything to do about reading the play, reading his books. It was at the very end of the editing process that he was generous enough to invite me to watch a representation of The Sun that was taking part in London at the time. The first time I saw a play of his in theater. When we decided to work together, I didn't want to be influenced at all. I never watched the movie of the first adaptation. I didn't want to read books of his or anything else. I wanted to be completely clear-minded before going into the movie. Yeah, that's a very interesting take. And I've talked to other editors who've cut films that are adapted from plays, and everybody has their opinion of whether they should watch it or not. So how would it have affected you, do you think, if you had seen the play? It can go in the way that it's something really beautiful and that I would be hesitant to mess with. 
in a sense. And that's what I need to preserve as an editor in my head. And also it could, <laughs> it could go the other complete way where I would not very be happy with <laughs> and then would be negatively influenced in another way. So I think as an editor, I don't ever want to go on a set during filming. I don't want to have anything to do with the actors. I don't like to be around actors at all <laughs> because I don't want to pick up on gestures or habits that they have in everyday life. That then when I watch dailies and I see those type of things that all of a sudden I'm saying, is it the character? Is he out of it here? So I much have enormous respect of the craft of an actor, but as an editor, I avoid it as much as I can. Then obviously in this film, I had the chance to meet Anthony Hopkins uh, in Los Angeles where we were after Sundance with Florian. And that is something that I would never refuse <laughs> because it's freaking Anthony Hopkins. <laughs> so you cannot say no to that. But in general, I try to work to see just characters in the work. It's important to me. Got it. Many people that I've interviewed have said the same thing. I'm not as protective, but I can understand the reasoning behind it. No, it's a complete personal thing. Yeah, it's to each his own. I would say that most people, I mean, I've interviewed 300 editors at this point, and I would say almost yeah. everybody says, I don't want to be on set. I don't want to meet the actors. I mean, I've had to cut out people that I became friends with. I became friends with one of the actors, yeah. and we cut him completely out of one of the movies. You know, it would have been much easier if I didn't know the guy. But when you know him, you're trying to come up with reasons to leave him in the movie. You know? No, also, <laughs> if you're on the set, to me, sometimes doing documentary, I'd rather be a bit more involved on the shooting because it's much more of an open process. But it's the same thing if you battle 10 hours to get a shot or you know exactly when one went through to get that shot, then you have a connection to it that it's very strong. So to me, that's the director's connection. It's not mine. I cannot be influenced by those type of things as an editor. The only thing that comes to me is what I'm seeing on the screen. All the rest yeah. is uh, noise. Yeah. <laughs> so. And sometimes the directors bring that baggage themselves the day, the day it's goes impossible not to. yeah the day goes horribly but what ends up on the screen is fantastic and then they hate everything of the day because they remember exactly. the emotion of it but you exactly. know that it's great it's our job to kind of have that distance and also in the same sense i love to work with the director i love having him next to me while i work but i don't want him to be there all the time because if we have the same connection with the dailies, then there's no step back. And step back is one of the most important things in editing. Or to be objective. Exactly. To be objective and to not be as tired of watching the material over and over again as the editor is. You worked with this director who is a very well-known writer. And I know that writers of plays are often very attached to their dialogue. We've got this scene that we can watch that I'm going to put in the article. It won't be in the podcast of when he first meets this caretaker. Yeah. He offers a drink and it's a pretty emotional scene. But I noticed that the dialogue is almost verbatim. I read the script very, very close. Yeah. Talk to me about working with a writer who is a director. I just want to say a little thing before. Since the film, I've done two features and some other stuff. So the film- to A me, little bit further like, back, yeah. Oh, totally oh, I understand. <laughs> yeah, I totally understand. I'm, I'm sure you understand that. I just wanted to mention. <laughs> Ever since the first meeting I had with Florian because he wanted to meet me after seeing some of my work, 
and knowing that he wrote the play, that it's something that went on for years, and then that he adapted the screenplay with Christopher Hampton, and that he was so involved in the writing, to me it was out of the question that I would go on our first meeting and say to him something like, uh, hey, you, your character there, I'm not really sure. <laughs> that was not at all my way of approaching this project. Not at all. I trusted him completely with the writing. And then obviously during the editing process, because it came also from the way they shot it, that it wasn't really improv improv improvised. Yeah. No, it was quite on the word of the play. There are a lot of scenes that are completely as they were written in terms of dialogue. And then also there were times when we took liberties because there's actually a scene in the movie that is completely with dialogue that doesn't exist at all in the final cut because we thought that it was a moment that silence would have much more impact than the dialogue that was in the scene. So even though he's somebody that spent so much time writing this project, he also had the understanding and gave me the freedom to suggest things and to take out a bit of dialogue when we thought it wasn't necessary in terms of pace. Because as you know, pace is... Pace is everything, yeah. It's, it's everything. Well, yeah, pace and emotion, right, sure. <laughs> yeah, because they go together. So it wasn't like if I would take out a word, you would go like, oh, this word is not... No, it wasn't like that at all. The dialogue that is in the film is because we thought it was the dialogue that was necessary. So it wasn't at all a firm grip on his part to say that I, I want every word to be said exactly. It wasn't like that at all. Can you describe or can you tell us which scene it is that you're talking about where silence worked better than the dialogue? There is a scene between Olivia Colman's character and Paul, her husband. The man, as he's called in the script, played by Rufus Sewell, that is after we have the emotional overstep when Mark Gattis slaps Anthony Hopkins in the movie. There's a scene there in the bedroom together, just before Anthony has his nightmare. And that was a scene where Olivia Colman's character gives reason to her companion that it's the right choice to put Anthony in a nursing home. The way the pace worked at that part of the movie, we thought that it would be better just to have a look of both of them and an exchange in the silence, that it would be stronger because when we, at that point, as an audience, we understood what that dynamic is about. And then it would also, besides the pace, it will also make the nightmare stronger because we will have a little pause before going into that part of the film. Very so it was a decision that was made if I remember correctly, relatively soon after we did the first edit. That's really an interesting choice. And I've heard that happen a lot. Denzel Washington said, hey, can I just do this with a look instead of the line? And the director will go, yeah, sure. If you can sell it with a look, do it. It's often very powerful. But it's also kind of dangerous because that's a big plot point. Hey, we're going to put him in a home. And instead of saying it out loud, it's done with just a look. And you're hoping the audience gets it. Yeah, because they've seen before where Anthony breaks down and has him in his arms and he's crying like a baby in his pajamas. At that point, we were sure that the audience knows that's the point of no return. So in his development also, we had reached already the point where there was no way back. And the information would just be repetitive. Yeah, exactly. Very interesting. While we're talking about the script and things that are left unsaid, some of the jumps in the script 
seem quite abrupt because it's supposed to be confusing. You're supposed to like, where, where am I? What just happened? The audience is confused just as Sir Anthony Hopkins' character is confused. Did you worry about that when you read the script? To me, that was one of the main reasons I wanted to be part of this project because there are several things that go in that direction. One is that when I read the script, to me, it was a nightmare. So my whole approach from the very, very beginning, and that wasn't even something I really talked with Florian about, but in my head, it was a nightmare because the whole point of the film is exactly what you said, to put the audience inside Anthony's head. And that as an editor is a bliss because that's provoking emotion and putting the audience inside of a story is why we do this. So to be able to have a project where your most important goal is to put the audience in that space, it's super interesting to me. And also Florian told me something the first time we met that really also convinced me that I absolutely want to be part of it, is that he said that is a puzzle that never gets solved because it exists in cinema that you have a story that is narrated in a fractured way that can go backwards or forward or whatever, and then you can put it together. But having that and never being able to put it together, I think that's a brilliant idea. So I wasn't really scared of it in an editing sense, but it was super compelling. And that was all the work that we did in editing because space has a lot to do with that too to be able to confuse, but never go to the point that you lose the audience, because that's the whole <laughs> tiny thread that you cannot pass. Yeah, to confuse, but not to lose. Love not it. to lose, <laughs> yeah. You mentioned meeting him for the first time, and you mentioned that he saw some of your previous projects that he liked. Can you describe how you got this job? What did he see of your work that he felt like you were right for this project? I did a film the year before that won the equivalent of an Oscar here in France. And it was a film that was very different. The film is called uh, Jusqu'à la Garde, it's called Castaday in English, by a director called Xavier Legrand. And it's a film that it's really raw and very verité, mm -hmm. as they say. And it was treated like a thriller, in a sense, because it talks essentially about domestic violence, but in a way that it's through different point of views. And the way it was shot, it was very pure and very simple. So a lot of the impact the film had, again, had to do with the pacing of it. And I think that's why Florian liked a lot with little, not editing tricks or cinematography tricks, with a really simple material. The film had a really big, powerful impact on the audience. So I think that he was looking for something like that. And obviously when you meet somebody it also has to do with the chemistry instinctively that you have with a person. And I remember very well that I was in Athens at the time. It was the direction of production that called me to say that Florian wanted to meet me. And it was a script, an adaptation of a theatrical play and all that. And I was saying, okay, well, great, because uh, it's always nice when you get offered a new project. And then they said, Anthony Hopke stars in it. And in my head, I, okay, <laughs> this one, I, I want <laughs> And for the first time we met, we got along really great. And it's an honor for me after the collaboration to be able to call him a friend because he became a friend, Florian. And that's very important to me. Nice. I just talked to Fred Thorval, who edited Promising <laughs> Young Woman, and he's from France. 
And he was talking about how he likes to edit American movies and French movies because they feel different or they're different to him. You've edited several French movies as well. Yes. Uh, can you tell us how are they different? Are they edited differently? Do you approach them differently? Oh, that's a vast subject. <laughs> <laughs> a really vast subject. We got 30 minutes. The film I did after Florian's film, it was a film in Greece because I'm of Greek origin. I've been living in Paris for more than 20 years now. It's something I wanted for a long time to go back just to edit a project and be able to stay there for a while, which I haven't done since I left. So editing a film there was different. Editing a film here is different. I did a series that was edited in London. That was different. It's obvious that every culture has its own sense of humor. The sense of rhythm is different. The sense of what's important to them storytelling-wise is different. So I, I'm not surprised at all that Fred considers the two different things because they are. The expectations, the way they see cinema here is different from the U.S., that's a silly example, but they really are very keen on the point of view. Everything must be in a kind of a point of view that makes sense to the story. Even camera placement, for example, which sometimes in films in the US, it's not that important because sometimes the camera is a character in American films. And then the pacing is different. What we talked before, for example, the way you use a show, not tell with a look, here is very prominent. <laughs> it's something that it's much more prominent, I feel, in, in France than sometimes in the US. Not to, to discredit or anything, everything to each his own. But there are themes completely different also. <laughs> so as an editor, I feel it's more easy than 10 years before. The chance to be able to work in different places, it's immensely enriched, provides with sad. You learn much more. <laughs> In the end. And sometimes, for example, even to me, I've been here for 20 years, the fact that I'm Greek and that I come from a Mediterranean culture, there are sometimes when I work in French films that I've asked myself the question, do I relate completely to the audience? And that's something that can really mess you up <laughs> sometimes as an editor. But there are very strong questions. So it's always interesting to be able to put yourself in danger in a way. Mm -hmm. and to be able to adapt in a situation because I feel as a person, that's how you learn the most in the end. Yeah. I interviewed Robert Grigsby Wilson, who cut the 40-year-old version. I don't know if you've seen that film, but he's a white guy, and the lead character, writer, and director is African-American. It's a totally African-American story, and he said the same thing. There are times when he was cutting it, he was like, I don't know if I'm right about this culture. I'm a white male. Yeah, but that's the interesting thing is that's where you take from your collaborators and that's how you can manage to put yourself in their shoes and be able to tell a story because you don't have to be of a culture to talk about the culture. You need to be able to understand yeah. the people. That's more important. Empathy. Yeah, empathy. And also that's why I still love to edit short films or even a documentary or a music video or even commercial because it's a completely different way to look at your material. You learn a lot and you can apply the way you would watch dailies on a music video to the way you watch dailies on a feature film. And it's all experience that makes you more complex in the way you see things. Mm -hmm. The script has several scene descriptions that can't really be seen or known by the audience. 
I'm going to read from the script here. She pauses for a moment in front of her father's dark suits. She touches them as an attempt to penetrate his mystery. Then she catches sight of his well-polished shoes. This suddenly reminds her of the man he used to be. Now, there's no way that you can truly have the audience understand all those words. I would disagree with that. (laughs) No, 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 no. But that's what I want to say. When you read that in a script, what does it do for you to try to convey that to an audience? With that particular example, because I remember that very well, it's a scene that comes after Anne takes Anthony for the first time in a doctor's office, where he says that she wants to go to Paris. She denies it. So already as an audience, you completely messed up because you don't know exactly what's going on. But the whole point of the scene actually is to show his fragility. So the way he's presented, and Anthony Hawkins blows your mind the way he does it, when he sits in a chair, a little bit like a small child, and then they're in the taxi together, and she tries to put her hand on his and he refuses. And then we had the use of the music. It's a music that comes around in the film uh, different times. So already using that music at that particular moment puts you in a specific state of mind as an audience. And then having her taking his clothes and then doing the ironing and then going to the wardrobe and she sees his ties, a tie for a kid, at least in my mind, because I remember how my grandfather was. It's something that really important because it represents him in a way when I saw the way we shot. And then she sits in the bed and the camera pans to the photo of the family. So to me, it's a brilliant way to do exactly that, to tell the audience, this woman right now is reminiscing in her head. She sees her father way she saw him when she was little. Mm. And again, without trying to be too insistent, because to me also, and it relates to that other film we talked before, to me, one of the most important things about editing is to be subtle and efficient at the same time, to be as subtle as I can without doing too many, look at me, I'm here, (laughs) things. But at the same time, being efficient because it's super important for the film itself. I want to give you another one of those examples, although you described that one perfectly. Here's a scene description. It says, the man has an air of menace. Does that help you pick a take or to understand the intent of the scene? When I edit, I don't look at the script at all. I don't do that. Some people don't. This is, again, one of those discussions I've had with 300 people. Do you read the script just before you do the scene or do you not? And sorry, just a parenthesis. I wanted to say that it's amazing the work you do. And I'm really happy that you do the work you do and talk with so many editors because it's super important. Oh, thank you. (laughs) To get that out of the No, to me, I always study the script a lot before the shooting starts. I would probably take a few notes or do a little card with intentions of characters. I always go to my sound library and take out sounds as I'm reading the script because sound is very important to me also. But at the moment I start editing, I completely put it aside because I don't want to think about it again. And that's when the collaboration with the director comes also because sometimes I feel that it's interesting as an editor, even if you're wrong with a choice, 
it's interesting to put the other person in that space because it can make him think for something else. And I don't want to go and read something exactly like that, that the character is menacing. I'd rather take it from the material he's given me rather than force it because it's written that way, if that makes sense. And obviously, when you work with somebody that wrote the thing, if they feel like it's not exactly as strong at that point or it, it needs a little bit of tweaking, they can also ask you to change it and it only takes a few minutes to do, which is the good thing with editing. You can be wrong, you can try, you can fail, you can do whatever, and it'll just take a little bit of time to just reput it together in another way. I want to talk about sound, but that idea of failing is really interesting to me. How do you deal with that from an ego sense that you can fail? To me, one of the reasons I edit is because it helps me put on check my ego. I don't believe that ego is something that helps us a lot in life. So it's also obviously has to do with my personality as a human being. It's not only because I do this job that I have become this way, obviously has to do with something more, more profound in me. But I really enjoy this because it's something so complex. Editing is so complex. There are so many fractures, so many things you need to deal with that, first of all, you never get bored. And second of all, you can never master it. So it's something that you keep learning and learning and getting better, getting better. So to me, it's important that I can be the most sure of myself I can be because it's the freedom I have to try everything I can try. So I need to be very certain of myself. And at the same time, I need to completely eliminate my ego. And that kind of bipolarity, if I <laughs> say it like that, it's something that really interests me. And also the part where you get in the head of the person you work with. So you need to separate a bit yourself from yourself and be another person because your job essentially is to transform the idea of your collaborators into a movie. So you need to respect the, the film has one personality. The one personality of the film is the personality of the director. And to me as an editor, I need to respect that. And I need to honor that even if he's not at all there while I edit, which happens sometimes, he or she, in order to do my job correctly, I need to respect his personality. And that's very interesting to me. Some might call it a style. Yeah, but while you talk with a person, you understand the way they see the world. So it's more about the profound, the poetry that each one has in his head. And that's really important. And also, we need to understand that a director that comes in the edit after shooting a film, that he probably spent five years to put together, he's in a really fragile state. So the last thing I want to do as an editor is to say, oh, this is what we're doing. I, I think that this is the right choice. It's not about that. It's a very unique and profound relationship you have with the director because you spend a lot of time in a tiny room uh, with them. So it's really important to be able to understand them as a person and yourself because you put yourself a little bit in your work. It's obvious that you do that, but to be able to do it in a way that represents the person you work with. Yeah, I, I think it's very interesting that you said that he's in a fragile state when he comes to that edit room. Every director. I've worked with Costa Gavras. He's an immense director with 40 years of experience. Everybody's the same way. And to me, 
even I, until a certain point, every time I would start to edit a movie, I would always be, oh, what are we doing here? <laughs> How do we start? Where, where do we go? What's going on? So I would always have the feeling that it was the first time it's time I would start the project. And I'm really sad that I lost a bit of that feeling. But again, experience is so important in editing because it gives you the force to do what you do. So <laughs> I'm okay. But every director is fragile when they come to... And people that say that are not probably lie. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're realizing, like you said, they've probably been thinking about it, working on it, yes. planning for it. And they're finally gotten to the point where this is the culmination. I don't have a chance to really go back. What I have in this edit room yes. is what I have. And five years of effort is sitting in front of them. And I always say to a director when he comes in the editing room the first few days that what could have been doesn't exist anymore. It's what we have. This is our material. And we do the best thing that will come out of this material. I don't want to hear you say, oh, why didn't I do that shot? Or oh, I should have you learn for next time, good, but I don't want you to think about it and I don't want to hear about it. We'll be back in a moment with more of my conversation with Yorgos Lampernos. Today's episode of the Art of the Cut podcast is brought to you by Evercast. It's hard to beat the ease of sitting shoulder to shoulder with the director cutting together in real time. The Evercast platform gives you that in-person experience no matter where you are. You can securely stream your Avid, Premiere, or any other NLE in 1080p with ultra-low latency. Plus, you can video chat, record, draw on screen, and even make timestamp notes. No more uploading or downloading files, no more installing special hardware or sending notes back and forth. Evercast now offers flexible plans to make it accessible to more creatives. And in the month of March, Art of the Cut listeners can save $50 off their first subscription by heading to evercast.us slash AOTC. That's E-V-E-R-C-A-S-T dot U-S slash A-O-T-C. Today's episode of Art of the Cut is also brought to you by Frame.io. Now that remote workflows are the new normal, filmmakers need a better way to collaborate with their teams and clients. Frame.io keeps editors, directors, producers, and DPs connected no matter where they are in the world. You can shoot in London, cut in New York City, and review in L.A., all at the same time before production even wraps. Frame.io's cloud-based platform helps you work at lightning speed, and their industry-leading security keeps your team and your assets safe. Head over to Frame.io to start your free trial today. And now back to my conversation with Yorgos Lampernos. The other thing that you mentioned was with personality, that it's not just about style, that it's truly their worldview and their thoughts and the poetry of their brain. So much of the relationship an editor has, and you said that you became friends, is the other things you talk about. It's not talking about the movie. It's talking about whatever, art and religion and family. No, yes, of course. They talk most about the movie, unfortunately, <laughs> because they're so obsessed with it. <laughs> but yeah, and it, that's the point is that you have a collaboration with a human being. Okay, you're doing a movie, you're doing a film, you use a certain language, which is the cinematic language. But in the end, it's all about the human relationship. You have, that's what sticks with you the most. And that's truly something I cherish with the people I work with. Because you spend a lot of time with them. You obviously talk about childhood, so you have an idea where they come from, how they behave with others, you see how they behave with you, with the producers, with the other members of the post-production team. So you have the time to get a really good grip on who the person in front of you is. 
Mm-hmm. And when I hear that somebody is difficult, I don't ever put so much attention to stuff like that. Because usually somebody that is in this work that is characterized as difficult is something that is uh, very demanding. And to me, it's good to be demanding <laughs> what we do. You need to be demanding. Yeah. It happened to me a couple of times when I had to work with people that everybody said they're too difficult. And, but when you're an editor and you're there and the person next to you feels that you give your whole energy to do the film, to do what they have in their head, there is no way you won't get appreciated. So it's also how you deal with that. And obviously there are people that are awful <laughs> and manipulative and disgusting. So obviously it can happen because the relation with the producer is a whole other situation. But in my experience, at least when the person knows that you're there to defend them and to do the best for the project, there is no way it will go wrong. Yeah, I've told that as advice to many students. I'm like, as long as they know that the story and the project is all you care about, then when you give criticism or when you push back against something, the director knows this isn't a slight on them. It's you trying to make the project better. That's a very good way to say it because sometimes you need to say to the person, it's not personal. We're doing a work. I feel like this is going to work better and it's not against you. It's not against your taste or anything else. Sometimes you need to go there. And also when you have a good idea, it's the same thing. Nobody will say no to a good idea. If the idea is is good, they'll take it. (laughs) I was really intrigued by something you said about sound because you don't think of this movie as a big sound design movie, but you said it was very important to you. And when you read the script, you're pulling sounds. This was so long ago, but you read the script and you thought the whistling of a tea kettle or some... Exactly. Everything I see that is described on set, for example, Anthony is in his kitchen and he's making a cup of tea. I will go and find a specific sound for the tea maker that I feel like might get you irritated if I need you to be irritated or smooth you if I need to be (laughs) smoothing. So it's very important to me because... In a sense, it's sounds that gives the life to the picture. You need the sound to make something living because a picture on itself is a bit dead in my head. And this was shot on a set too, so it's dead. Yes. Oh, it's completely dead. (laughs) And sound plays a big part in pacing that many directors are not aware of as they should, (laughs) unfortunately. And also you can play with the audience even with the sound in certain scenes. Concerning this movie, there is sounds that get repeated sometimes because it's part of the story. It's also the way you set the space. How much do you to listen to the city environment that surrounds you or not? It has to do with the follies also very important. Even uh, something silly like footsteps. You can get a complete different impression of something according to what type of footsteps that you record for the character. So to me, sound is a whole world that I really love. And I always take part of the re-recording mixing process because I hate surprises, (laughs) first of all. And also because I'm meticulous about, so it's important to me. Mm. I was thinking of the sounds of the apartment and maybe street sounds and whether there are street sounds and whether there's sounds internal to the apartment creaking of, you know, doors or windows or air handling or 
Yeah. yeah, even as we edit, I can take out my phone and record a door or something that I need for a specific situation. But also, for example, it has to do with the flat. You need to have cracking noises, but not too much because you cannot make it feel like it's abandoned or that it's the eeriness. Mm -hmm, like a horror movie. Yeah, the eeriness came more from the situation rather than too much accentuated with sound. But the music was really important. We did a lot of music editing during the editing process, which becomes a nightmare now, <laughs> especially in France. It's always tricky the way music is done because of budget situation. They don't let you have the composer early on, which to me, it's very important. So you find yourself putting temp music and that's a nightmare. So it's important to have, for even after reading the script, it's important to have a piece of music from the composer that will make the movie because he puts his personality into it from the start. And it's important to have that personality from the start instead of me or the director choosing something temp that we get too much used to it. And then we have a hard time to abandon and that's not a good way of doing things. Yeah, temp love. That's one of the things that I do when I'm reading a script is I start pulling temp. Do you do that? I don't do that anymore because I got beaten so many times with this that I refused to do it. I did the film before, that is Gabriel Yared who did the score, who is a non-composer that works for a very long time. He couldn't do temp music because he scheduled during the editing period, but everything temp that we used came from his music. So we were already set in the mood of what he was going to do. And also it's difficult for a composer. If you screen the film for him with the work of another composer, egos get in place and he hates it. And then it's a nightmare. Mm. <laughs> I think that if someone can avoid temp, it's better to, to avoid in my sense. Yeah, because of the father's dementia, the moods change on a dime. I was looking at the scene we just watched at the beginning. Was that tricky? How did you deal with those tonal changes? I think it was rather early in the editing process that I started working on that scene. I was a total bliss for me, <laughs> that scene, because you have everything. And that's tricky. And at the same time, it's so exciting and challenging because you go from Anthony being lighthearted and a bit comedic and doing his tap dancing and try to impress a young lady to him completely destroying his daughter and then destroying the young lady. And to me, I would have fun in my head trying to play with the idea as an audience that we have of Anthony Hopkins because of Silence of the Lambs and things like that. So to me, there are a couple of takes that I try to play a bit <laughs> with the idea because I know that it can have a direct <laughs> effect on the audience and then you also have the super emotional side of Olivia Colman you just look in her eyes and then you're completely with her <laughs> because she's brilliant <laughs> and so Imogen Poots that plays the caretaker also brings a brightness and kind of that youthful spirit mm -hmm. of hers which is super important in the balance of the scene so yeah trying to find that small thread of not having Anthony being too mean because you're going to hate him and not too sentimental because she's going to appear weak. So having all that balance for an editor is a bliss, <laughs> complete bliss. Absolutely. Let's talk a little technical stuff. How do you approach 
dailies? How do you look at dailies? Do you do selects? How do you approach a new scene? So I don't look at the script very much at the time. Even if I appreciate enormously their work, I don't look at what the script noted during the filming. Because to me, the impressions you get while you shoot and the impressions you get on the screen are two completely different things. Obviously, if I'm lost somewhere or if I don't really understand an intention, I have all the columns with every information that was written during the the shooting. So if I need, I can go back and watch to understand what take the director liked to understand why and what direction I should take. But for this film, for example, I started editing while they were shooting which is something that I'll try more and more to have my assistant do because that's how you learn to edit. And unfortunately, especially here, I don't know how it is in the US, but here the work of an assistant is not appreciated at all anymore. They just come to do the syncing and putting the project together and then at the end to do the exports, which we don't learn anything. You just learn the technique, which is you do it one, two, three times, you know it so... I make a conscious effort to put my assistants to edit so that they can form before because it's super important. That's how you get good editors. So I would have her do the first assembly. I was obviously going there often and take a look at things and change things if I feel that this should be different. But now it depends on who I work. But sometimes before the director comes in the editing room, there are scenes that I wouldn't even look all the dailies. Because I want to have the surprise, because when I work with the director, we obviously go through the whole material, and I always edit as I look things. I'm not the type of editor that will watch four days of shooting and then will start to edit the scene. As I watch things, I need to put things together. It depends on the project and the director, but I try to put a first assembly together as fast as I can, because it's not the film, it's not an edit. And people confuse that a lot. The first assembly, it's not edited. The first assembly to me, it's something that will allow me to watch the film from beginning to end. And I always need as an editor to have the bigger picture in mind. And that's also personal to each his own. I don't like to work on a scene till it's perfect. Perfect doesn't exist, but Mm -hmm. till it's pretty much done and then go to the next scene. I need to go as fast as I can to be able to have the whole picture in my head. And then we'll go back. And this also allows me during the whole editing process to go back a lot to the material because I'm not tired of it. Mm -hmm. So at any given moment, I can go back if I feel like I'm stuck in a scene or if I feel like something doesn't work really well. I can come back, relook at the whole material, have a new idea and restructure things in a new way. So I'm trying to preserve myself as much as I can from the material so I can go to it as much as possible during the whole process and not only in the beginning. To maintain your objectivity. Yeah. And also it helps to get new ideas because you see something that you didn't see before and it triggers a new thinking and then it helps you to move along. I think most editors would say that definitely the editor assembly is just an assembly, but there are a lot of editors that would try much harder to get something that was truly like a movie with really perfect effects, perfect edits. Oh, no. When I do an assembly, it looks like a movie. (laughs) I already put the music and sound and I try to have a pace that we won't kill ourselves 
when we'll watch it. No, yeah. I'm not talking an assembly of three hours. I, I don't believe that at all. But it's, it's just a first assembly, so it's not the movie. Right. And also, I think that a director needs to be part of the process. So a first assembly, it's something that is done without them being there. And so they will have a more difficult time to connect to it. Mm-hmm. And that's completely understandable. That's why I'm saying that I don't want to spend too much energy on that because I need to have my energy for where I will work with the director. Is that a discussion that you have with the director? I want to maintain my energy for the rest of this. Is that a discussion you have about the editor's assembly? Like, don't panic. Don't kick me off the picture when you see the editor's assembly. No, I don't feel like And That's why I'm saying that experience is the most important gift because I would never feel, even if I do something that's not in the intention of the director, I know that I can change it in 10 minutes. It's not about me having the fear that he won't like it. I want to be free of that because it's not very interesting. But especially in first directors that do the debut, yes, I have the conversation and I'm very clear that what we're going to watch when you get back from the shooting is just to be able to see the whole thing and to realize what works, what doesn't work. It happened to me, for example, on a movie that I put the first edit together and I realized right away that the beginning didn't work. So when the director arrived, from the first day we started working, we completely changed the start of the film. It's a gain of time, but it's really important. Got it. How were the performances obviously brilliant from these actors that you had to work with, but did they give you a range of temperatures? You mentioned you didn't want Anthony to be too mean, but he had to be mean enough. Yes, especially from Anthony's character, yes. Because he can be very high or very low. He can be very sentimental also. Anthony Hopkins, at least in my eyes, did a brilliant job of giving us a place where we can have choices and use what works best for the point we are in the story. And that was really important. Did your choice of those temperatures change a lot when you saw it in context? Yes. I'll give you an example. There is a discussion between Anne and Anthony in the very beginning of the film when she says that she's fed up and that she's going to go to live in Paris. And he says, are you leaving me here? And it's a very emotional scene. And there's a take where Anthony's at the point of cracking in tears. And when we were first cut that scene, to me, it was too early to have him being that sentimental in the film. I thought it was better to not go there right away. So we cut the whole first cut. And as we were working, that was the way that the scene was edited. And then little by little, we realized that we need that emotion. And so that's why it's important to go back at your material because we realized that it wasn't detrimental to that part of the film at all. On the contrary, it's something that we needed to set up from the beginning. And so we went with a take that at the first viewing felt not too much, but that we were going to be too sentimental by using it. I'm talking about myself, I cannot talk for Florian. It's often that you go back and change things like that, obviously, during the edit. Yeah, it's interesting. I've heard people say that when they're putting notes on takes, that they don't say things like bad or no, because you don't know until later whether that's bad or not. All you know is it's very emotional. Exactly. That's why I avoid to read what they write during the... <laughs> the script the, notes. The, yeah. But I always, when we, I talk to the person that does the continuity of the script, I always tell them the most important is what the directors say. 
I don't want to know <laughs> much of anything else. I just want to know if he had a reaction in his face or stuff like that. That's more important to me that good, bad, uh, very good, uh, excellent. That doesn't mean much. <laughs> yeah. I've kept you for quite a while. Is there anything else you want to talk about with this movie? I imagine it's the same for you. I love talking about editing, so it's, it's all good. <laughs> yeah, no, I do too. We talked about this a little bit. I would love to know more about the transitions. If you haven't seen the movie, basically the film is jumping forward and backward in time. The audience doesn't understand even when you are. Like, oh, did this happen before? Did it happen after? Was there something you did at those transitions or did you just let the footage take care of itself? It's two things. It's a bit of editing and it's a lot of production design because Anthony's apartment is a character in the movie. So it was editing in the sense that, for example, the first time we see the corridors of the apartment that come quite early in the film, that's not stuff that is scripted, that is not part of the play. That's typically kind of scenes that you create in, in the editing room. So the way we deal with that was through edit. And also there was a brilliant work by Peter Francis, the production design and Florian that had to do with the set itself because the set changes almost in every scene. I mean, even when you think that you're in the same room, there are things that are changed inside the shot. So it's a, a combination of stuff that we created on the edit and the way it was shot and the way the production design was treated to be able to navigate through time and, and space. You're saying it happened in the edit. Can you explain what prelapse or sound or... Because they shot some, I guess they call it B-roll, but it's not mm -hmm. really B-roll, right. of the apartment. So we could create a little bit of interludes and transitions with just shots of the top of the apartment or there's a shot of the sink, for example, <laughs> that comes <laughs> at a certain point of the film. But to familiarize the audience with the geography of the apartment, because, spoiler alert, in the end you realize that it's the hospital. <laughs> it was never an apartment. And it also had to do with the way the sound overlaps and when a certain atmosphere of the street changes or even the way the music is used in those transitions. Yeah, in the script it mentions a couple of times that, oh, it looks like you're in Anthony's apartment, but it's decorated different or something like that. Mm. So is it also a question of, deciding to start on a wide shot or on a bit of detail? Yeah, it has a lot to do with the choices of angles and the shot because there are moments that you want the audience to know they are in a different place and there are moments you don't want them. So obviously the way you put the shots together, you can create either one of those. For example, there is a scene that Anthony and Anne take the elevator to go to the appointment with the doctor. If you're careful, it's the same door as Anthony's apartment, but it has a different handle on the door. So you're always in the same space, but you're never in the, in the same space. So obviously, when they get out of the elevator and they go to the door and it's and that sounds the bell, you know that not everybody will get that the door handle is different, but you know that it's, <laughs> it is there. And even when they get inside the office, and that's the reason why the film was shot in, in studio, is exactly the same apartment, actually. So the corridor is the same. Instead of having the opening that goes to the living room, you have a stand with a secretary that takes the appointments. But when you look at the space, it feels familiar because it's actually the same space. Oh, that's really interesting. And it's pretty rare for 
scripts to give you shots, but I even noticed starts on establishing shot. Yeah, Obviously, yeah, yeah. you you know didn't have to do that, but there were direct descriptions of shots in the script. Yeah, because that speaks to Florian's way of working and preparing, which is quite precise. And I also had this experience with the French director, Xavier Legrand. And to me, it's not at all a coincidence that they both come from theater. And Xavier does that too. And I think every film is different, but it's a really good way of doing things. Is that when he writes the script and when he's doing his shot selection, he always does it with a set in mind. So the space is very meticulously thought and very precise. And to me, it helps you immensely when you go to shoot. Mm. And it's not a coincidence either that part of the French film was done in Studio 2 because they wanted the apartment to be in an exact way that they couldn't find an apartment that had that configuration. So they ended up doing it in Studio. Did you edit close to the set or were you across town? No, I was completely kilometers and kilometers away. <laughs> Again, I don't like to be very much in set. We didn't talk about that. That's another interest of doing a first assembly that if anything goes wrong, you can pick up a phone and if the planning permits to tell the people, excuse me, guys, maybe we need to talk about this. <laughs> Were you delivering scenes to him each evening or each weekend? No. No, I would never do that. I don't want the director to watch anything at all during the shoot. And if, for example, I would be in the same place, I would not permit him to come in the edit during the shoot because I feel like it's too much for him or her to handle because you don't need that pressure. I mean, it's good to watch dailies the way traditionally was used, where you would do a projection in 35 millimeter with the whole crew and everybody would see exactly what they're doing. I think it's interesting. But at the same time, it's different to watch dailies and watch an edit. And obviously, if something goes wrong, or if they ask me, for example, from another film, there was a lot of car movement, and they wanted me to send them an edit to be able to record sound that would match the edit. So obviously, that's a whole different case. But I don't think that the director needs the pressure of watching or being in an edit. It's too much already to shoot. I think it can be taxing. Yeah, that's very interesting. I have done kind of the reverse with people I've worked with where they love coming at the end of an evening and sitting down. So one of the things you mentioned, though, is when you were getting dailies that if there was a problem, you would be able to call it in. So that's totally on you. A lot of times people would say, oh, I send the edit to the director so they can go, oh, I miss this. I should have gotten this close up. I need this angle. But you're making those decisions for the director. It depends on the people. Obviously, if somebody asks me to come to the edit during the shooting, if they insist, I will say yes in the end. But yes, usually if I see something that I think goes wrong and I know that they have the time to correct, and I would never, ever talk to the director. Hmm. I will talk to somebody or the script of, or a producer if I already have an established relationship with them before going to the director. Interesting. Okay. And you mentioned that in French films, often it's very much about the point of view. Did you feel like this film was similar to that? No, because the point of view is so much Anthony's head in this movie <laughs> that the question resolves itself, in a sense. That was also an advantage of Florian having written the play, is that he knew what worked on an audience. 
And that was a big advantage in this. And also, I have to say that we had a really great collaboration with the producers because they were really happy from the early stages. So they didn't really interfere a lot, which is a very precise thing to have. Because I could imagine a scenario where uh, with other producers, they would get too scared that the audience will lose itself in the movie and that they would bring up questions that didn't need to be there at all. So having Florian being the way he is, it was a great advantage in that sense. Because I think that you can really destroy this movie if you go into the wrong path of, of question. I can totally see how this movie would have a ton of studio notes where they're like, this doesn't make sense. That doesn't, I don't understand this. Yes, but that's the good thing about Europe in a sense is that the director gets the auteur status, so he's quite respected in that matter. Then, of course, nowadays, <laughs> even being a director is not thing because in France, for example, we have a lot of actors that are directors right now because the audience knows them, so producers feel more comfortable having them direct films. So it's a word that doesn't always means its true sense. <laughs> but yes, at least in this setting of this film, we didn't have to go through a lot of interference with comprehension and things like that. The other thing that I thought was really interesting about something you said was you mentioned how American films, the point of view of the camera is vanilla almost. And I think that's probably from the typical idea of coverage. Okay, I'm going to get a wide shot. I'm going to get an over the shoulder. I'm going to get another over the shoulder. I'm done. Or I'm going to get the raking two shot. And it's kind of the way coverage happens. How do you feel French films are shot that is so different? It's not easy to, to answer that because every film is completely different. I mean, I just finished a film last week with a, a woman director that her way of directing is that she films. So there is a DOP on set, but she also films everything. She's the operator? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything is done with two cameras. And then because she's somebody that's quite instinctive, you get a material that would resemble more a documentary in a sense. And then obviously you have people that shoot in exactly the way you describe, that very academic way that they get their wides and then they do their coverages. But I think, again, it has to do also, even in that respect, to the auteur idea that they have in French film, where a director needs to establish himself even with the way that he shoots. So he would try to be a bit more, not risky, but to put his stamp in the way he shoots things, which can be good and can also be not that great <laughs> when you don't take the best decisions. But it's very diverse from film to film. On this movie, did you feel that you needed to vary shot size or whatever because the cast is a small cast? Obviously, you've got brilliant actors, which is awesome, but you've got a very small cast and you've got very few locations. So there's not a lot of outside interest. No, to me, I don't know if I'm answering exactly the question, but for example, when I started watching dailies, I was always drawn by the white shots because I was thinking a lot about the apartment and I was thinking that it was super important to set it up correctly from the beginning. But when you have actors like this and you go to a close-up and you see what's going on, you don't care at all anymore about the white shot. There was a time when I had a problem taking the decision and understanding 
where will I find the balance in those terms? Yes. Interesting. All right. I think that's it. I really enjoyed this conversation. What, a, oh, what an enlightening conversation. Thank you so much. No, thank you. It's, we don't get to do that very often as editors. And it's important because it makes me also think I really appreciate, again, the, the time and the effort you put doing this. I really, really appreciate it because I don't know in the U.S. if it's the same way, but here you don't get a lot of chances to even talk with editors because we're kind of uh, socially awkward people <laughs> in general. <laughs> but I really, really appreciate it, really. That's very funny you say that we're socially awkward because <laughs> obviously the other thing about an editor is you've got to be very socially conscious. Someone's got to like you. You've got to be able to get along socially yep. and politically, and you've got to be empathetic to the people you're editing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in the same time, I don't know how you are. And obviously, I'm talking for myself, but I'm not the type of people that feel very at ease in a room with 50 people. But the good thing about the editing room is that it puts you in that kind of bubble. Mm -hmm. And you cannot not be able to have a relationship with the person you work with. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of editors would describe themselves as introverts, but that doesn't mean you're not social. It just means you don't want to be with a hundred people. You want to be with one. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. <laughs> it's more like that. <laughs> yeah, I agree. It's also the nature of the work itself that puts you in that space, obviously. Absolutely. Yorgos, congratulations on editing a fantastic movie. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was a really great talking to you. That's it for Out of the Cut this week. Thanks for listening. Also, check out ProVideoCoalition.com for nearly 300 interviews with the world's top editors. Or read the book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors for a Topic-Driven, Curated Experience. Thanks again to my guest, Yorgos Lampernos. Also, thanks to Jake Gum for editing today's podcast using Adobe Audition. And thanks to our sponsors for making this podcast possible, Frame.io and Evercast. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Hullfish. I hope you subscribe to this podcast and give it a review, please. And finally, be sure to share them with a filmmaking or film-loving friend. <laughs>